0: Welcome to the Swamp Witch Podcast. My name is Brandon Ledeh.
1: Hi, I'm Allie.
2: And I am Boomer.
0: And we are three friends who are meeting over the internet to talk about movies once again. I have some movie news up front related to things we talk about in the show sometimes. Two items. Please
2: tell me that this is uh, Matt Farley news.
0: No, I have no Matt Farley news. Um, oh, okay. Although he is releasing his second feature film of the year soon, called Metal Detector Maniac. Ooh. So that's spooky Halloween season content right there.
2: We know that you're listening, Matt, and we love you.
0: We love you so much. <laughs> Matt is actually a big Impulse fan, uh, which is how we know that he's listening, because oh. like within hours of us posting that episode, he he checked in to uh, say that we did a good job discussing it.
3: Aww. Well, I feel bad uh, that his films are a swan flicks blind spot for me. I've only seen, I've only seen good things.
0: So, local legends, don't let the river beast get you, and um, monsters murder and marriage in Manch Vegas are all <laughs> modern classics.
1: I
3: love the titles. But
0: okay, speaking of impulse, my movie news item was that uh, William Shatner is paying Jeff Bezos's company to fly him to space in real life.
2: Space can have him.
0: And the other item uh, related to topics on the show is that Allie guested on another podcast recently called Horror Versus Reality. I
3: did. We covered the Hitchcock movie Frenzy, which uh, was one of his last features. It's a rough watch uh, for sure, but we also talked about the real life murders that inspired it.
0: That's what that podcast always does, right? Yes. uh, They combine true crime with fictional horror stuff.
3: Yeah, or, you know, horror stuff based off of true crime. So they did Memories of a Murder, and they talked about the real murders behind that. Um, They've done Psycho and, like, the Ed Gain connection. It's pretty cool stuff. Cool ladies making a cool podcast. Definitely check them out. They're good people.
2: I didn't even realize that the Robert Block novel was based on Ed Gain. I didn't realize that.
3: Yeah, I don't know if it was the novel itself or the movie. I'm sorry. I I'm sorry. Horror vs. reality. That was one of the episodes that I did not get to listen to, but I did know that they had covered the subject. So, uh,
2: m- my apologies for for outing you and for oh, your no, colleagues. It's okay. my, my bad.
3: No, no, it's okay.
2: That Frenzy episode is still
0: their most recent one, if you want to check it out. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed listening to it, even though that's not my favorite Hitchcock movie, because it is so gross. It
3: is disgusting.
0: Yeah, it's in the 1970s, so he's like, really pushing what he can get away with in that like Grindhouse era, um, oh my really like, God. zooming in on the violence, uh, where you know his best stuff is when he kind of pulls away and has to like conceal a little bit.
3: His best stuff is when people were like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Just, like, so many good artists works best in limitations, you know? So many good artists, it's so much better when somebody can be like, actually, you shouldn't.
2: Have you considered not? Yeah, exactly.
3: (laughs) Every great artist needs someone who will do that. Just say. Just say no.
0: And I think he does that a little bit in that movie, because, like, the first rape strangulation scene is, like, really rough to watch. I saw it at Britannia, and there were, like, walkouts. At oh, 10 wow. a.m. on a Sunday morning, which I get.
3: That's totally, totally understandable. I was not expecting that at all. You know, especially for that error, like, you know, there's so many movies that don't even come close to that level of, like, sheer just... Oof. Brutality. Yeah, it's super brutal.
0: But then later in the movie, he, like, doesn't do that again. Like, when there's another strangulation, the camera, like, pulls away and, like, leaves the building. Yeah. He's definitely, like, playing with, I guess, the times and, like, just showing everything you can show and then going back to withholding. I don't know. It's definitely an unpleasant sit, but a very interesting movie.
3: I think, you know, there's also, like, it shocks the audience and then... You keep expecting it to shock you again like that, and that's part of the tension, I think, anyway.
0: That's like his uh, bomb-under-the-table analogy, except... Uh...
2: And the bomb does go off, and, but you <laughs> know that... The, <laughs> the bomb immediately the blows one.
0: up.
3: <laughs> I was gonna say, the bomb already happened, but you don't know if there's gonna be another. Yeah. It's rough, but I had a lot of fun recording that episode, so maybe one day they'll they'll have me back. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I'm, uh... I asked uh, if they were going to cover the news about the Zodiac Killer, and for those under a rock, they may have determined the identity of the Zodiac Killer. So yeah, I asked if they were going to talk about that, and um, I was told that maybe, because they don't really consider Zodiac a horror movie. So we'll see. We'll see what they do.
0: Also, Ted Cruz has not been apprehended yet, so the story is still unfolding. Yeah,
3: the story is still unfolding. But uh, other than that, it's just been a lot of Columbo, and um, we were talking about it before, like, off mic, but uh, also the story of Walnut the Crane and her zookeeper, Chris Crow, and their love story, which, if you haven't checked it out, it is not movie-related yet, but... It's worth checking out. Boomer, what have you been watching since I'm clearly just not doing anything but school and cheating on y'all with other podcasts?
2: (laughs) Well, we uh, decided to go ahead and pause the X-Files watch since we reached the end of season seven and it is now spooky season. And that means horror movies a go-go. The first one that I checked out it just came to Netflix, starring Megan Fox. It's called Till Death. It's okay. Uh, I'm currently working on some copy for that and a couple of the others that I've seen, so I don't want to talk about it too much. Because every time I say I'm going to do copy and then I talk about it here first, I never circle back and actually finish the review. So I will not get too into detail, but... Essentially, it is Megan Fox doing a variation on Gerald's game, where she ends up sort of handcuffed to her husband's dead body. And he has gone full jigsaw in preparation for causing this event to befall her. Again, I don't want to get too into detail. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but essentially he has taken her out to their lake house and gotten rid of like completely thought through every single small thing that she could possibly think of to free herself save herself what have you and removed that possibility jigsaw style so like every time she thinks that maybe she's like oh i can get his keys and go to his truck but when she gets there and she starts it. You know He's recorded a message for her, and he's also like, oh, by the way, I siphoned all the gas out. So uh, her attempts to get away from there are further complicated by the arrival of the man that she's been having an affair with, as well as the recently released convict who attacked her, and she blinded him and essentially... Her husband, the lawyer, they first met when he was, like, her lawyer as part of this case where she blinded this man with her keys after he had, like, stalked and assaulted her. And it left her with, like, a scar on her back. Anyway, um, it's a variation on Gerald's game in as much as, you know, she is handcuffed and she's trying to escape. It doesn't have quite the psychological element of being completely uh, trapped, like, handcuffed to the bed like our heroine in Gerald's game is, but Megan Fox did drag a stuntman around for the entirety of this movie, and it's very impressive. It looks great. I will say that Kat watched it with us, and Kat wanted it to be pointed out that Megan Fox's makeup is never smeared, never runs. She wakes <laughs> oh up beautiful. She Even after she like gets blood on her and washes her face, Her face is still perfectly made up. Um, Kat was annoyed by that, and she wanted to make sure that it was noted in any capacity, either writing or or on the podcast. So I just want to make sure that it is duly noted in the record that Megan Fox's beauty is never tarnished.
0: It's also worth noting that uh, Jennifer's body got another accolade, uh, a delayed one, by being added to the Criterion channel this month. So it's officially, you know... Woo. Primo Cinema, <laughs> something that a lot of us have known for over a decade now, but it's still slowly gaining respect and traction in that trajectory. She doesn't usually get a lot to do, so it's cool that there's a couple horror movies that are like actually giving her some screen time, something yeah. to chew on.
2: And then the other movie that I watched, and Brandon, I know that it piqued your interest uh simply because, uh, you know, we share a Shutter account between all of us, and it was added to the list. But it was Scare Package.
0: I did not add that to the list. Someone else did that. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, do you know what it is? I have no clue what that
2: is.
3: Too bad I have my own Shudder account. The Swampflake Shudder account sounds like the so, last.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the last time we were all together, we talked about Grimm's Fairy Tales and other um, anthology horror films. We talked about how we all sort of enjoy those, and so once the season seven finale of X-Files had been seen. I immediately went to shutter and I was like, okay, I'm going to the anthology section. I'm going to pick something and scare package looked interesting to me. Uh, and so I checked it out. I, I read the Roger com review. Obviously it wasn't written by him. Um, you know, he, he's dead although that would be really spooky A Um, ghost. ghost uh it's an anthology film made up of seven short vignettes that one of including the sort of wraparound uh segment so it opens with a segment called cold open which is about a guy named michael who basically has a role in horror films in the sense that he is behind the scenes and it's his job to Put the cursed devices in the attic or to cut the power before the killer shows up, right? And then he quote unquote leaves the movie. So basically, he's like a almost like a technician and sort of a cabin in the woods kind of way. And you're thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be the wraparound for all of these different anthologies, you know, all these different vignettes within this anthology, rather. Um, and no, it's not. It's actually that he is just a person who is telling his screenplay idea to a guy that picked him up as a hitchhiker and that actor who plays of the all. the guy who picks him, <laughs> the guy who picks him up his name is Chad Buckley it's played by Jeremy King and Chad runs Rad Chad's Video Emporium which i immediately was like oh that's Vulcan Video the late great dearly departed love of my life Vulcan Video and then I kind of talk myself out of it. And then by the end, yeah, it definitely is. Because they eventually go outside the shop and you even see like the mural there with, you know, Clint Eastwood and, and, and everything. So shout out and uh, pour one out for Vulcan Video. But the individual segments are kind of hit or miss as often happens within an anthology film. And what I really enjoyed in the Roger Ebert review of it was... Uh, This line, hilarity ought to ensue, but somehow never does. (laughs) (laughs) Brutal. So there are a couple of gags that really work. It's a lot of non-professional actors for the most part, or professional actors who I guess are just not well-known. Like the most well-known people in it are like Noah Segan and Jocelyn DeBoer, uh, who we have previously talked about. She was one of the stars of Greener Grass.
0: Oh yeah, she's hilarious.
2: Yeah, she's great. And she's she has like a 35 second role in one of these vignettes, uh, which is one of the better ones. It's also the one with Noah Segan in it. It's about a guy who seems disaffected, who is at a bar and uh, sees an advertisement for like a men's rights advocacy group. And then he goes to their meeting, but it turns out that they're like werewolves. And then, of course, the additional twist is that um, he's like either a werewolf hunter or some kind of like occultist who is uh, killing the werewolves for their skin for some kind of ceremony. Uh, the best segment is Girls Night Out of Body. It's also the weirdest one.
0: Great title. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, it also has the best introductory gag. It's that the guy who has been hired to work at Not Vulcan Video is like putting videos back and there's like one section that's titled like post-feminist, you know, some like extremely narrow (laughs) description of a genre uh, that includes like post-feminist, you know, etc. And it's like just the one videotape there and it's Girls Night Out of Body. But the video store sort of serves as the wraparound segment In the sense that the videos that they're watching and the the vignettes themselves function as videos that are being discussed or shown in the rental store. And then eventually we sort of exit back out to the wraparound narrative and Chad himself has been kidnapped as part of a scientific experiment on a slasher killer where... This guy identifies like the other horror character stereotypes. There's like the jock who, you know, is wearing like the Johnny Depp half shirt from Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Uh, The stoner. uh, And he's like, oh, you're the final girl and you're the slut. And like, he ends up being wrong about which is which. And it feels like a joke that would have been so funny like 15 years ago.
0: Cabin in the Woods.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Cabin in the Woods was <laughs> was was nine years ago, but yeah, it's like it's a little bit postmodern, but it's like late to the party. The things that it's doing are not quite as funny as they think they are, and that does include the fact that Joe Bob Briggs is in this movie. Ugh. Oh, well, what are your <laughs> feelings about Joe Bob? Share them with me.
0: Um, I just think he's like a Gen X. I'm a political kind of a bully. I don't really have super specific feelings about him because I find him tiresome and don't pay much attention to him. <laughs> My weekly experience with him is, oh, why is everyone tweeting about this one 80s movie I like that um, never gets discussed? Oh, they're watching it on Joe Bob. Okay. And then I tune out.
2: Yeah. Um, s- same. Same. <laughs> I I'm not I'm not a huge fan. I have a coworker who like really really loves him and I love how much my coworker loves Joe Bob Briggs, but he does not mean anything to me. Like I didn't grow up watching, you know, whatever the horror diner's drive-ins and, and dies thing is, whatever it's called. That <laughs> I yeah, that was not my thing. I much more clearly remember TBS's Dinner in a Movie and their peas and carrots advertisements. I think that Joe Bob is, um, he's got some ideas that are not great.
0: He flirts with right-wing rhetoric a lot. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just telling it like it is. I, I stay out of politics. It's like yeah. Whatever. Which is yeah. the line. I just went on for about, Two hours last episode about how much I love Elvira, and I have like an endless enthusiasm for talking about that. Yeah, <laughs> um, I can't talk about Joe Bob for more than 30 seconds, apparently, because I just bore myself as I try to explain why I don't like him.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't love Sven Gulli, but I'll take Sven Gulli over Joe Bob any day. Same, uh, Joe Bob shows up in this movie, and he is like actually one of the few bright spots because they're you know trying to escape from this facility and joe bob is like you know you're in a horror movie and i know you were in a horror movie but they don't so you know there are a couple of cute bits in that segment when they're trying to get away from the uh the impaler or whatever the slasher killer who's part of that outer framework story <laughs> one of the things that the stoner character does is like pretend to be one of the campers that he couldn't save you know and at one point they have they're like oh the reason this car won't start is because it has to be more than 14 meters from the killer's body so they have to like get out and drag the killer's body further from the car before it'll start I thought that was a cute joke (laughs) but for the most part it's pretty hard to get through and I hate to say that because it is clearly you know shot here locally in my city, you know, and I'm sure that that's a lot of local talent who I might even run into, which is again, why I don't <laughs> really like uh, like to say bad things about people who I might run into in the city, but it's not great. I can't recommend it. Whoever else it was that is sharing that shutter account with the rest of the staff, uh, you might want to give them a heads up that it's not worth the time. Uh, Brandon, what have you been watching?
0: I've been turning this segment into um, what library holds did I happen to get this week. Uh, (laughs) And um, neither of them were exactly spooky, but were like spooky adjacent, maybe.
3: Love spooky adjacent. That's like the realm where I want to live.
0: I got this Irish psychological thriller called Rose Plays Julie that has like a little bit of, you know, post-festival buzz around it. Um, It's pretty okay. It's about this veterinary school student, like a college student who is obsessed with finding her birth mother. She was adopted and just trying to figure out why her mom didn't stick around. Um, and she finds out that her mom's like this, like famous actor. She visits like the sets while her mom's working and like watches her from afar. And um, it turns out, I mean, this is trigger warning right now. This movie's about sexual assault, that she was the result of a rape and that her mother was young and, you know, just didn't want to, live with the aftermath of having been assaulted. So she decides to track down her birth father after this encounter and um put a stop to his abuse of women beneath him. Uh he's played by Aiden Gillen who do- who is I feel like only plays creeps uh, and he gives the exact same performance in every one of these movies. Uh but the movie's more about the two women, it's about the mother and the daughter and they're both like giving these really like nuanced, restrained subtle quiet chilly performances and i'm watching this film like this is one of those indie movies that's like really tense and like really well made and really like thoughtfully constructed but it just has no humor to it and no artistic style like it doesn't let the style of it overpower the story it's telling which is like where i really like movies to go especially genre stuff and especially during the veterinary school scenes i was just Watching these animals being prepared for like slaughter in these like sterile spaces, and I'm like, I wish I was watching Raw instead. I wish I was revisiting Raw.
3: <laughs> All I could think Love of it. when you said that was Raw, and I was like, okay, do we get more cannibalism?
0: Some of that might be that I'm like buzzing off of uh, Titan still because I just watched that. Rub it week. in,
2: why don't you just rub it I in? I
3: want to go see it, but I haven't had time to go out to go see it. I have friends that saw it, and I could probably read the text but the quote is basically the same as i saw this movie it was really weird i think you would like it (laughs) and i was like okay yeah i've been looking forward to that one so good to know
0: it's a really slippery movie it's like impossible to describe without tipping anything off and then if you actually try to put into words what it's saying and what it's about it's like even slipperier it just like is so impossible to pin down and I don't know. Thinking about raw too, like that one's got a lot of like ambiguity in yeah. what it's doing and saying. And I don't know. I'm watching Rose plays Julie, and I appreciate the performances and the fact that the movie's like about performance um, in a way because her mother's an actor and she goes undercover to like hunt her own father in this like generational revenge tale. And I don't know. I I think there's a lot of people that would appreciate this style of genre filmmaking more than I do, where it's like really grim and like serious while tackling these like actually serious subjects. And I'm just missing the catharsis of something with, you know, a dark sense of humor and a like overactive sense of style paired with that type of subject matter. And I realize that what I'm asking for is a lot more divisive and um, maybe irresponsible in some ways. So if you like the more responsible, sober style of that kind of filmmaking, I think this one's interesting. It just wasn't exactly for me. And the other movie was actually the scariest movie I've watched so far this month. It's called Zola, which was a much buzzier release a few months ago, but I finally got it on DVD from the library.
2: Oh, right. What is that about?
0: It was a movie based off a Twitter thread.
2: Yes. Oh, right, 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 right.
0: It's a dark comedy road trip for the first stretch where like this... Uh, waitress slash exotic dancer is sort of lured and seduced into this road trip with another stripper that she like just met and halfway into the road trip she realizes I don't know this person very well and I don't know what she's dragging me into Um, and she gets down to Florida and is just stuck there with this woman her like idiot boyfriend and what turns out to be her pimp and it turns into like days of being trapped with this other woman while she turns like tricks in hotel rooms and not being able to leave. And as someone who did not read the Twitter thread, this was based off of this like real life series of events. I had no idea where it was going. So, like, what really struck me about it, besides the fact that like the costuming's beautiful, it, it's from Janiska Bravo, who also did that movie Lemon, which had a great costuming and visual style as well. And the humor of like what's happening, there's just this. Sinister humor of like randomness, like images and characters, and just the events of life just intruding on this story. That sounds throwing like throwing her off the trail.
3: It really captures the mood of the Twitter thread.
0: Yeah, and they worked with um the woman who wrote it, uh, Zola. She got like a screenwriting co credit for like actually guiding the narrative of the film as well. So she got to like work with the creative process, which is great. But what really struck me is just that it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> Some of the best A twenty four like. Films are the ones that are set in Florida and are um, nightmare movies like Spring Breakers and uh, The Beach Bum and uh, Florida <laughs> Project. All darkly funny movies, but also terrifying in their own way. Uh, this one also has a score from Mika Levi, who always does really, you know, tense music. And he or she throws a rhythmic tweet notifications in to, like, throw off the rhythm of the music. So it, like, keeps shocking you with its, like, percussion I don't know. I thought this was one of the more substantial movies I saw this year, but I can understand why it's not something that stuck around so much for other people, just based on the fact that like the narrative is very episodic. It's like, and then this happened and then this happened because it's just recounting a real road trip from hell. Uh, But honestly, I got more out of this than I got out of hustlers a few years back. And that was a much more well-regarded film. I I think the visual style and the uh, in the moment tension like, really gripped me in this one in a way that I did not expect, based on how much buzz it actually has. And I got it from the New Orleans Public Library for free on DVD. So, uh, if you don't want to, like, take a chance on a VOD, maybe check your local library see if they'll lend it to you.
2: We love the library. We do love It's a really odd film. It starts with kind of knockabout, satirical,
0: undercutting comedy and then moves into something which is really kind of operatically creepy and odd and genuinely
2: bamboozling. And it's called The Wailing.
3: For this episode of our podcast, I had everybody watch the Korean movie The Wailing. It is a two and a half hour long Epic of a movie that has shades of zombie, colonial horror, shamanistic stuff, the devil, just murder. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. And I personally think it's spooky as heck. It starts out with a cop in this small Korean town. And he's called to the scene of a murder. And it turns out that it is a family member who has murdered an entire other set of his family. And has done it in a craze. Nobody knows why. And from there, just weird events plague this town. And it starts to be presented that all of this has happened since a strange... Japanese man has moved in. Which, of course, is where we get our colonial horror. And these cops try to solve the crime and it goes places.
0: Yeah, I don't think we need to avoid spoilers, really, because um, I don't think the movie answers the mystery of what's really going on in any kind of definitive way.
3: No, not all. So I wouldn't hold
0: back any information <laughs> as we're discussing it.
3: Yeah, so essentially... It is revealed that it is the Japanese man that has caused a lot of this evil.
0: I don't know if that's true.
3: See, I think it's true. So here's the other thing is there's so many different interpretations of this movie that I didn't know about until I was like trying to find on the internet a little more about, you know, its tie in to the colonial era and stuff. And people have they got all sorts of answers about this movie.
0: I think the movie like actively mocks and teases you for trying to pin down a specific answer to its mystery and looking for a guilty party for this just sort of generalized evil that's happening in the town. And a lot of that is that sort of like witch hunt, you know, a stranger arrives. So you point fingers at him. So it must be him. And that solidifies the fact that it is him. So they kind of manifest guilt in these like blank slates of characters. There's, At least two, maybe three, let's say three characters. The shaman, the Japanese stranger, and Mm -hmm. this sort of like ethereal, almost like ghost ghost woman woman that hangs around. And anytime you point your suspicion of those characters at them and start reading into their behavior, where they're basically just standing there as blank slates, you're manifesting their guilt and turning them into something more evil than they actually were. You're like putting evil into them as like a symbol and then, by the end, actually transforming them into these evil ghouls. Um, <laughs> a lot of the interpretations I saw from people who don't like this movie are that it, like, doubles down on its xenophobia. Yeah, I mean, obviously. That's
3: what I I saw too. Uh, is a yeah, lot that's of, present. Yeah, it's not surprising. Like I said, I think it is more of an allegory for Korean history, um, and its history of being colonized by Japan, the effect of it, and... What I interpret the ghost woman as actually is like the presence of like the pleasure women that the Japanese soldiers took as as well as like the young girl, the daughter. But there's also the shaman and the idea of families killing each other. So like we got the Korean War, we've got the shaman who only wants money for, you know, the capitalism aspect of it. There's a lot going on. As far as like Korean history stuff goes. So it's hard for me to look at it in like a, oh yeah, xenophobic light, except for, you know, the fact that they just keep saying Jap, like constantly.
0: Yeah, maybe um, the word distrust is better than like xenophobic because, you know, there is like a actual historical precedent and like reason for that distrust. Yeah. But I think (laughs) the distrust itself is the evil and that like small town mentality is the evil presence in the film and i think there's two ways to interpret that final speech from what turns out to be quote-unquote the devil um where it's like either confirming your suspicion of these outsiders or it's like the way i read it which was like i become what you see in me (laughs) like you were manifesting an evil in me that i i did not arrive with or even like the uh the Um, he kind of arrives as what feels like a slickster, like a con man. Yeah. And um, the more trust they put in him to save the cop's daughter from this rage virus that uh, everyone's being infected with, the more real his rituals become and his effect on the world become. They, like, manifest a power in him that he did not arrive with. And I I really like how heady and, like, ethereal a lot of these ideas become as the movie goes along. Because you kind of want, you know, it it piles a lot on you. There's, like, zombies and ghosts and, like, a curse and magic rituals and, like, Satan by the end. And, like, it piles a lot on you. And you want one of those to be, like, an understandable genre that the film is in. And it avoids all of that. It, It, like, I think has fun with slipping through your fingers every time you try to grasp onto what it's doing. Um, and I found that very thrilling.
1: Yeah,
3: I think that's definitely part of the the terror of it is what is going on? What is the right answer? I just say that because of the shamanistic ritual that turns into a spiritual battle between the shaman and the Japanese man and the murder shrine, that it was like the superstitions of the Japanese man in this township that sort of created this horror. But, you know, he could just be a a guy that likes taking pictures of murder sites and people in town. Who knows? So yeah, it, it's definitely a uh, slips through your fingers, what is the real evil here? Because even if he's causing some of those crimes, how would he be causing everything, I guess? I don't know. That's just why I say, like, you know, he's responsible for all of it. But... Also, on the internet, I saw somebody say that they thought it was all just bad mushrooms. And I was like, really? <laughs> I would love to see your interpretation of that, but they didn't really explain it anymore. so
0: That's one of the culprits that's yeah. suggested. Um, and I think you could read into any one of them that you want exactly. to focus on. Did y'all happen to see um, The Empty Man from last year? No. No. It's another movie like this. I, I, I'd actually put Empedagore um, in the same category as well. Uh, I, th- I think The Empty Man is currently on HBO Max and Empedagore is on Shudder. And the two movies in tandem, like just thinking about them, gave me this like vision of like what I would want mainstream horror to be like all the time. And I feel like uh, The Wailing fits firmly in that same paradigm where it's like...
2: I'm a little surprised by that.
0: Well, I, okay, let me put it this way. When I'm saying mainstream horror, I'm talking about like big budget stuff. That's always going to be more about story and ideas than about like um, individual directors' like artistic and uh, flair.
3: It's never really compelling stories, and like the ideas are interesting, but like they're never really fleshed out. So it would be interesting to see somebody really given like yeah something weird and ethereal and hard to pin down and give them a. Huge Hollywood budget.
0: Yeah, I think this does the thing where it like it looks and feels like a kind of horror movie you can understand, and is playing with like the scale of you know the big budget seventies horror like The Exorcist that people are still like holding yeah. up as like the ideal heyday. Um, and I'd put Pedagogy and *The Empty Man* in the same category where it's like it's playing with the large scale, the recognizable narrative, and then. Doing something so weird with it, at least in the third act, that it's, like, impossible to really pin down and pigeonhole is, like, one thing. Um, And, like, really going big with the ideas instead of, like, what is, like, the alternative? Like, we have, like, the Conjuring movies or, like, the Endless Annabelle sequels or the Bye Bye Man, like, really (laughs) dire, unimaginative stuff. Um, This feels like a, like, version of what I would want Hollywood Universal or mgm horror movies to look like on a regular basis we should get one of these a year i think uh <laughs> and it's, it's it's much rarer than that maybe
2: it felt sort of classical to me in that way too in that it felt large and imposing and i guess what i meant by i'm surprised by that is i was looking at this movie before i watched it and i looked at its length and i had forgotten that this was your suggestion all right yeah yeah. Brandon. <laughs> yeah and i was like wow Brandon picked a movie that was two hours long. He must really like this one. (laughs) And I was very excited and impressed because we are often, and and I've gone on at length about my feelings and sort of the origin of my, like the genealogy of why I prefer a movie to be as long as it needs to be to tell a story and longer, as opposed to most people who are like, "Mm, that movie could have been shorter. It's like, uh, you know, I, I, to me, I can feel like my time has been wasted by a movie that's eighty minutes oh, long. Yeah. But if a movie is hours and hours, it, I, I if it's compelling like this one was, it doesn't feel uh, its length to me.
3: Exactly. Uh,
2: although this one did, uh, <laughs> this one did feel its length. As compelled as I was, it did seem there were a lot of. Uh, the, but the thing was, I don't think there's really anything that you could excise from it without really changing it too much you know a lot of times we are like oh this scene could have been trimmed or we didn't really need this scene of William Shatner packing and farting (laughs) it doesn't
3: what are you talking about it doesn't
2: change (laughs) it doesn't change the meaning of the movie if we if we miss that part whereas like here there's an investment that occurs naturally as a result of extended time I care about a movie most when it makes an emotional connection with me more than anything else, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether I have an emotional connection to it because I can see in a bad movie that this was, you know, someone's dream project that they really cared about or something that can be very technically well done and very technically well crafted that doesn't have an emotional connection that doesn't you know connect with me on an emotional level and i kind of am like okay whatever this was a movie that created like a rhetorical space in which the fear could occur because of its length and i don't know that we could have done that were that not the case
0: i guess that's why i'm saying it's closer to the ideal because i know especially in a post like marvel fast and furious world people expect big budget movies to be over two hours long now. Yeah, they do. People feel like they're getting ripped off when Venom is 90 minutes long. There's like, where's the extra hour? It kills Um, (laughs) me because
3: you watch those movies and it's just like, oh my God, like you're tired at maybe, you know, the end of the first hour even. And I think to top it off, this is the thing about movies getting longer and longer, especially Hollywood ones that irks me is If we're going to do that, we need to bring back intermissions, but that's a whole separate (laughs) rant from me.
0: Yeah, Bollywood does it. Uh, They they still have it, and it's great. I love it. It's usually a time for me to go get a second glass of wine.
3: We talk about how theaters only make money off of concessions, and we're not bringing back intermission. Terrible.
0: But this does something different, though, where it's not just giving you the three-episode you know, television series update in a row that, like, those longer-running series give you where every character has to get their own little beat. Uh, and in this case, it's basically just blowing up a genre that's sort of familiar, but not really, to, like, an operatic scale. Like, when, when I'm calling back to, like, the big-budget days of The Exorcist, it's because of that scale and, like, how big and wide and, like, how, how much of a favor pitch it's allowed to reach through that length. Mm-hmm. What's really funny about this example, though, is it goes in both directions. It's both, like, taking this paradigm that it's set up about, like, you know, the menace of strangers and, like, communal sickness outbreak and all these other, like, supernatural entities. But it's also pulling in the direction of slapstick, like, comedy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like, uh, it has, like, the 28 Days Later, like, rage virus base. But it's also both funnier and more... um, serious at the same time it like does both so it uses its runtime to do the most in every direction that it could possibly do and i'll always back that kind of maximalism um whereas like a two and a half hour american action film um usually doesn't give me the same kind of maximalism i see in films like this
3: so the first time i watch it i'm gonna be honest i did feel like it was very long but i also like boomer was saying like i think it felt very long because of the fear, it does build. Like, even in the quieter spaces of it. There's something to be said that you could call this movie just a thriller, but this movie scared me so much. Like, the first time I watched it. Like, this time it's at least, like, I knew where everything was going in. But, like, man, that this got labeled, like, just A supernatural thriller, I was like, oh really? No. (laughs) I mean that just
0: means horror to me. I know, it's mean horror, but literally is horror.
3: But like at the same time, you know, I think thriller, I'm like, oh no, surely I won't be scared to the point of like hiding behind my couch cushion. But no. (laughs) It's just there's so many scenes in this movie that just like give me the heebie jeebies, to put it in another more childish way.
0: What are some (laughs) specific scenes?
3: The first scene that really just, like, got me was the scene with the hiker and hiding behind mm-hmm. the rock and just having the demonist like, almost nude Japanese man, like, reaching for him, like, reaching through the screen. Oh, my God. That scene got me, like, so good. I was like, ah! Don't... I don't like that. Um, And I think the other one that really stands out is the part where they're going to the house that has been burned down and there's the woman trying to fight off everybody and eat them and then in the stretcher they're bringing away her husband and then suddenly he's out and about
0: the japanese man
3: oh man and then they're biting
1: everybody right oh
0: this movie also uh leans into the two taboos of like Children in Peril, where like his daughter's sickness is really excruciating to watch. It's like her her acting in this movie is extremely good. I mean, there's like a little child. She's so
3: good in this movie. I just such a good child. She has to do
0: both. She has to do like fart and burp. Yeah. Like a bodily humor. And then she also has to do this like anguished, squirming, just gnarled hands like writhing and shrieking as she's getting iller and iller and the fever gets worse and then Um, also
3: demon child you know
2: yeah yeah she's great i had my moments where i was wondering how much of this was intended to sort of play on your expectations as a member of the western audience right Because there is the exorcism scene where we're seeing the shaman as well as, I guess what we'll call the demon or the stranger, and they are sort of (laughs) locked in a battle of the minds.
3: Yeah, I think earlier I said a spiritual battle.
2: Yeah, or a spiritual battle or just like two uh, counteractive occurrences or seances or or whatever is happening Mm -hmm. there. Rituals. Yes, they're doing head-to-head rituals. And, you know, you see the daughter writhing and from that, what we're as a Western audience to interpret based upon our experience with, you know, our knowledge of evangelical Christianity and our knowledge of the exorcist that what we're seeing is the shaman being successful. Yeah. Right. And that it is the father's weakness in his refusal to let the, ritual be completed that causes the uh, daughter's possession to continue, rather than if he let the shaman finish the ritual and then they would be done and she would be cleansed, etc, etc. Now, of course, that's uh, that assumption is drawn into question based on what we maybe learn uh, at the conclusion about who is in cahoots (laughs) with whom or what, but I don't know that I had the same interpretation. I know that there is a deleted separate ending that kind of lends itself to a less ambiguous ending. But to me it seemed more like a four car pileup between four different like modes of being. You've got the shaman, you've got the woman in white, you've got the stranger, and then you have this family. And it normally whenever you're watching some a film like this, you've got, the family and the possession, right? And mm-hmm. the possession is fought by the priest or what have you, and it's fairly straightforward. But this, it sort of seemed like there were multiple beings from different spiritual disciplines, which I think was brought in by the presence of the the one cop's deacon cousin, and the fact that they do go to like a Catholic church at one point to talk about what's happening. But I do like Brandon's interpretation that what we see in the stranger is what people expect him to be, because there, you know, the film does start with that biblical quotation that then is called back whenever the deacon is confronting the stranger. Yeah, with what appears to be, you know,
3: some stigmata going. What
2: in his hands? Yeah, yeah, stigmata. I don't know.
3: I personally don't think the ghost lady. Yeah, tell was me evil. what. Tell me what
2: your interpretation is of these events. So.
3: I don't trust the shaman, and I don't trust the Japanese guy, and I don't trust the police, but I do trust the ghost lady. Like I said, I think that has to go with my interpretation, like from the viewpoint of like Korean history and like the colonial terror there, because to me it, it right. very much feels like, especially when they talk about oh the woman who was raped by the Japanese man you know, to me, it struck me very much as, like, a call to that whole concept, especially since the Pleasure women thing has been an interesting, like, and terrible, obviously, like, historical thing, but, like, the way right. that, like, Japanese government and everything has handled it has been incredibly fraught. Yeah, I mean, they great. didn't even formally apologize until the 90s. And then... Yeah. Even in 2017, there was the one guy. I don't. Was it the prime minister? Or was it the emperor? I think it was the emperor that said, "Oh, the Japanese government didn't do that." And right, it's like, oh my god! Like it's 2017. Y'all acknowledged this in the 90s. How is there still someone publicly saying this? Right. So, yeah, it I kind of felt like that interpretation to me with the Japanese forces and then the shaman who's really just after the money and like I said kind of being like this capitalist force and you have this ghost woman who is not being listened to who just you know seems intent on saving people from this Japanese man rather than actually like causing harm but I mean, that's just my interpretation because I I'm looking at it from like the historical view. But I love, I love how there's so many interpretations of this movie.
2: It really keeps you guessing for a pretty prolonged period of time. Yeah, because there's also this interplay between what we think is actually happening versus what is actually happening, and when exactly our main character starts dreaming. Yeah, right. Because there's the scene where he follows the woman to the house, and she's telling him that, you know, this is what actually happened here. And then that segues into him confronting the sort of demonic entity, and then he wakes up. And you're left wondering, when exactly did he start dreaming? Yes. How much of that was real? And so, at that point in time, you don't know for certain, as a viewer, if there is a distinction between the woman and the stranger. Yeah. Because it, she disappears and the stranger appears. Is that the dream? Is she in cahoots with him? Is that just, are these different forms of the same creature? Mm-hmm. So, you're left guessing so much because... Depending on your interpretation, depending on how you feel, you might decide ultimately the shaman and the stranger are in cahoots with one another, or are they also opposed to one another, as it seemed to be the case during the exorcism ritual, or not.
0: Mm -hmm. I will say about the dream with the deer, too, like, he has that dream after he already heard someone tell him about the stranger eating raw deer in the woods. Yeah. Right. So- It also plays into the more ambiguous reading where, like, he's only seeing what other people are telling him and, like, reconfirming those suspicions. Like, well, if someone told me that and then I had a dream of the same image, then that must be the truth. Yeah. And, like, reconfirming and solidifying that reading of what evil is about. Yeah. Definitely.
2: I think that, you know, if this were remade in the West as, like, a Western story, which, you know- is something that Hollywood loves to do. We would not get those dream sequences. We would not get them. We would not be able to have a film with that level of ambiguity left over. I
3: mean, Hollywood does that, and it's like not even just that there's not even the cultural context for it here. I don't know. It just drives me crazy. So you're right. Right. Um, They would do that, and they would take away the cultural context and the dream sequences.
2: And then what are you left with?
3: spooky you're you're left with
0: zombies
3: (laughs) basically yeah
0: just be like 28 days later again 28 years later i don't know that's why i was kind of throwing the empty man in that uh list of like you know what i think are like the ideal mainstream horrors because that one does do big weird esoteric ideas at the last minute but i think that one even lays out a more specific reading of what's happening it just happens to be stranger than the movie you thought you were watching yeah here i could hear arguments about why different readings are how people interpreted what's happening here and they'd all be valid yeah <laughs> which is great
2: right yeah
3: i i love movies like that i don't necessarily want movies to have a straightforward answer and i know that's somehow unpopular but Anything that you can talk about like this with people and be like, well, what does it mean? (laughs) I love that. We all have seen the same scenes and experienced the same movie and it's still even vastly different, like the way we take it. And it's so wild to me. I love it.
0: I I will say too, um, I know earlier we were talking about like moments in the film that actually like scared us and like Mm -hmm. terrorized us. on top of the uh child writhing in illness i was watching this on the couch with my dog in my lap uh, <laughs> just watching this Mika. scene where the cop transitions from adorable bumbling slob into like oh you know yeah. actual cop when he beats this uh, suspect's dog to death oh my god um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that scene that was is uh, hard to a watch lot.
3: that scene is rough oh no i didn't mean that pun <laughs> uh, that pun was oh, not no. intended
0: I loved it anyway uh, <laughs> and it does that brilliant um, thing we were talking about Hitchcock earlier where like it leaves a lot to your imagination like you feel like you're watching something more violent and explicit than you are like it pulls away and you listen to the violence yeah, and what you're imagining in your mind is probably more traumatizing than what the movie could actually show you
3: yeah I was gonna say it's interesting like we don't really get a whole lot of the explicit violence without say for the scenes where they're like a zombie attack like we never see the actual murders happen which
0: yeah and even the aftermath is not that thing in Hollywood horror films where you walk in and everything's decorated in blood and like someone wrote something cryptic on the wall in blood yeah um, and it looks like a haunted house set like it doesn't look real Here, the violence is not sexy or, like, romantic in any way. It looks like filth. Like, the blood is just mixed with the grime and the mud from outside, and it's just, like, black and mucky.
3: I love how dirty everyone is all the time and how, like, disgusting just it all is. I don't know why. There's just something about this movie that, like, I don't want to touch it, but I like it.
0: And it's always raining, like, constantly throughout it. And the rain doesn't add that, like, horror movie atmosphere in the usual way it just makes everything wet and gross like it just makes yeah. everything just sticky and difficult like it makes the, the cop's job more difficult to go to location <laughs> yeah. to location he like slips and falls on his first crime scene oh investigation my God. <laughs> so yeah there's just rain and blood and mud everywhere and so all this and- like who knows what else? Yeah. people vomiting. I don't know. It's just trash
3: gross. in all of yeah. these places. Like every single like murder scene or like dark scene they go to is just trash everywhere.
0: It's also funny, like talking about how gross it is. Like I'm used to Korean movies shooting food as this like beautiful aesthetic object. In this case, watching this like slob cop eat. A bowl of noodles is fucking disgusting. Like there's so much ADR of him slurping. Uh-huh. Um, and like uh just chewing, like with this like slack jaw mouth breathing style of eating. Yeah. <laughs> it actually like grossed me out because I had like, my headphones all his, on watching like,
3: it. Schlubby friends doing the same thing. <laughs> it's like,
0: oh even the food is not beautiful here. At best it's like a funny joke, and at worst it's like just as icky as the people getting sick. Yeah. It's a it's a really fun mix of tones. Like I really it like really that about is. these longer I, I want to say just generally, like, Asian films, like, Indian films do this, Japanese films, Korean films, where it's just, like, every tone you could possibly think of. It's, like, a real journey through, like, yeah. different feelings and sensations. and
2: Right, because there, there are some things that are clearly played for comedy, right? Yeah. Like, when they're looking for the stranger and they go to look for him, their fight with that reanimated body is clearly played for comedy. Yeah. Yeah. It goes on forever. And then when the shaman returns and he confronts the woman in white, it's gross out comedy, but it's strangely out of place. And it makes me wonder how much of the rest of the film was supposed to be played for comedy, but we're not aware. Because comedy, unlike drama, is much more culturally specific. You know, Mm -hmm. drama is a little bit more universal, whereas comedy often relies on a lot more institutional and cultural and social knowledge to understand oh this is a comedic irony because we're supposed to understand something about this culture so i don't know if there are large segments of that that we are missing out on because of our lack of knowledge of that culture too
0: well there is the really obvious stuff like the little kid farting and burping or like
2: sneaking up to watch her dad have
0: sex in a car and like call him out and having sex uh like that all that stuff's like all straight up slapstick right and then there's the sort of genre minded stuff where like i was just talking about the rain being this more atmospheric like gross setting but then there's the scenes in the cops like the police station where everything they say that's like vaguely spooky is punctuated by a thunder outside yeah And that's really overdone in a comedic way.
3: Yeah, it's overdone in a comedic way, and then they, like, actually get their scare, It is Right.
0: There's a good jump scare at the end of that. Yeah. So there's definitely, like, a universal filmic language, at least in, like, the fact that we know what to expect out of genre movies. So, like, it can subvert your expectations and play with them. And that stuff seems intentionally funny. And then there's the stuff that it's, like, obviously upsetting. I, I doubt any of the possession illness scenes with the child are supposed to be like for a goof, except maybe when she burps after eating that giant fish meal where she eats everything in the fridge. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you're right. At the same time, there's like so much in between, especially when it comes to just straight up dialogue where we'll never know unless mm-hmm. we like go to live in Korea for 10 years and get acclimated.
3: Part of the thing is like, there's two different types of storytelling culturally, You know, here we're very focused on the three-act structure, beginning, middle, end, and that's been the thing, you know, forever, book-wise, movie-wise, play-wise, whereas, you know, I feel like in Asia and, you know, countries that aren't, quote-unquote, in the West, there's a little bit more play there. It's more about a journey and a quest, and there's not as strict tones, and... There's humor and, like, suspense and everything. And I'm really glad to see more of that getting popular, especially here. I mean, we do need to look at more, just more narrative structures from everywhere.
0: I mean, Parasite winning an Oscar is the last good thing that happened in the world. Yeah. So I'm still riding on that high. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully that means more, you know, funding and distribution for this style of cinema.
3: Yeah, I I sure hope so. And... I think, you know, The Wailing did get a pretty wide distribution. And, you know, we were talking about how widely available it is before we watched it.
0: Yeah, it's streaming on so many different platforms right now.
3: I know, personally, like, it was playing at multiple theaters here when it came out. I did did not have the chance to go see it in theaters, unfortunately, because, and, and also fortunately for theater goers, because, you know, there's some of those scenes that would just be so much scarier on a big screen. But I'm a yelper, y'all. It's bad. (laughs) I always want to go see these movies in theaters, and then I watch them at home, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad for everyone in that theater that they didn't have to deal with me, like, yelping and gasping and being like, ah!
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think the theater experience, too, is, like, where these, like, longer movies work best. And I I am guilty of what Boomer was saying earlier, of just, like, when I have a selection of movies that I want to watch, I my general rule is I'll just pick the shortest length, one yeah, which is why you know I've been meaning to watch this movie since 2017 and just never got around to it. But if I were gonna go to the theater to watch it, that wouldn't be a problem. Like I don't really care how long a movie is in the theater. It's like, can I sit on my couch and not look at my phone for two and a half hours in a row? I don't know that I have that kind of resolve. Uh, unless it's for this show or, you know, a movie of the month selection or something. So I guess that's my roundabout way of saying thank you for giving me an impetus to finally make the time for it. Because I never clear an entire evening for a movie like this. Uh, unless I catch it in the theater.
3: I'm so glad you liked it. I'm so glad this wasn't like a, oh god, she made us watch this two hour long thing we gotta drag ourselves through. I'm glad it was well received.
2: It certainly was in this house.
0: Well, uh, next week on the show, we are going to talk about another group of films that follow a maximalist filmic style. We're going to talk about horror musicals, starting with Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, yes. which uh, throws everything it possibly can at you in the same way. <laughs> which is under two hours, but sometimes feels uh, twice as long as The Wailing <laughs> in some ways. It is a very unwieldy yeah. film, but a very good one. And stars uh, Suspiria's Jessica Harper. It's always good to see her. And in the meantime, we are posting purely spooky content all October. I'm holding my reviews of things like Zola until the month is over. <laughs> I'm just unleashing all of my horror reviews this month, and anything else anyone who wants to contribute. And you can check all that out at swampflix.com. All the way up to Halloween. Just
2: the spooks. <laughs> spooky dreams, everybody. Bye. The
1: best